God's word this morning begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John 2, verse 13. And the Passover, of the, Jew, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Our next passage will be in 1 Chronicles chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and we'll conclude in chapter 20, verse 3. Now it came about after this that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, died, and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the sons of Ammon to Hanun to console him. But the princes of the sons of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David is honoring your father in that he sent comforters to you? Have not his servants come to you to search and overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. Then certain persons went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return." When the sons of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan and the sons of Ammon sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram, Meekah, and from Zobah. So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots. And the king of Meekah and his people, who came and camped before Mediba, and the sons of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. And the sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel, and they arrayed themselves against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abshai, his brother, and they arrayed themselves against the sons of Ammon. And he said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous, 
for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. So Joab and all the people uh, who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, then they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river with Shophak, the commander of the army of Hadezer, leading them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came upon them and drew up in formation against them. And when David drew up in battle array against the Arameans, they fought against him. And the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed of the Arameans 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers, and put to death Shophak, the commander of the army. So when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and served him. Thus the Arameans were not willing to help the sons of Ammon anywhere. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabah. But David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab struck Rabah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head and he found it to weigh a talent of gold and there was a precious stone in it and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and cut them with saws and with sharp instruments and with axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structures of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our field. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May they be no cry of distress in our streets. 
Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. No matter who the president is. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to hear from you, from you today through your word. Speak to us. Build us up in Christ. Make us strong and courageous. Help us to heed the command of Scripture. Fear not. Fear not. So make your word powerful in our lives today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be, uh, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. Well, mine really says burned, but the word is found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. <laughs> Did you think that you have anything to do with God's coming? Well, some people read that, and uh, there have been a few in this church over the years who think, okay, if we got to hasten God's day, well, since things are supposed to get worse and worse and worse, and then it'll come, oh, let's vote for the worst candidate for president. What nonsense. Because he's talking about what kind of people ought, ought we to be in holy conduct and all godliness. And friends, that has something to do with the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, we know God knows when it's going to be. But we also know that God holds us responsible and works through means. And we are part of the means of that coming day. What kind of people ought we to be? In all holiness? Well, I think we know what we ought to be. The question is, are we that? Well, so we have a new president driving in. I uh, heard on the radio uh, uh, that uh, Robert Jeffers was going to take a Sunday out and speak about the new president and how we ought to live. And I told Grace, I'd kind of like to hear that. So I almost uh, just skipped out this morning. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says. 
I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with a, with a so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a man. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from your midst. Well, so we've switched presidents. And our new president, by all the reports, is a good Catholic. It's interesting to note that the Archbishop of America in L.A. doesn't think Joseph Biden is such a good Catholic. Oh, he's in agreement with Joseph Biden that we should help the poor, those sorts of things. But at the top of the agenda are things that the Catholic Church does not agree with such as abortion and gender identity and forcing every business and religious organization to pay for birth control for the whole country. Joseph Biden claims to be Catholic. It's a touchstone. He's our second Catholic president. And Joseph Biden, wouldn't it be something if the Catholic Church followed Scripture and excommunicated him? What kind of scandal would that be? But you see, the church hasn't that kind of gumption. It would have happened to Donald Trump also if the church had gumption. I don't know if he went every Sunday, and I don't even know what church he went to, but he does claim to be a Christian. And yet on this list is the word reviler, which Donald Trump is and was. Both men would have been cast out of the church in this country if the church had gumption. Or, to put it in Peter's term, if we walked in holiness and godliness. Well, so we're going to take some time in uh, Chronicles this morning. It's not going to be our normal kind of time because it's a huge section. And it has to do, of course, with the promises that were made to David. So you have to think, 
your way through chapter 17 and the fact that David wanted to build God a house and God uh, said through Nathan the prophet, did I ever say to anyone that they should build me a house? Did I not follow you around in a tent? This is what you shall say to my servant David. I took you from among the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people. And wherever you went, I was with you everywhere. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's where we get the word Emmanuel. I was with you everywhere. And I took all your enemies out of the way. And so now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a great name like the men on the earth. And I'm going to make a place for my people that they may dwell there and not be moved and not be wasted by their enemies. And I'm going to subdue your enemies. When we come to chapters 18 through 20, we come with a phrase. And after this, in chapter 18, verse 1, in chapter 19, verse 1, and in chapter 20, verse 4. In the beginning of chapter 18, David subdued the Philistines. At the end of the section in chapter 20, I should say at the end of this larger section in chapter 20, the last little section in verse 4, David subdued the Philistines. The whole point is, smash it all together, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, all of the surrounding nations, David subdued them. It's done in a certain order, because if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, we talk about the Philistines. Then if you move to chapter 20, verse 4, we pick up with the Philistines again in terms of giant people, men with six fingers and six toes and those sorts of things. So we know that these are the bookends, Philistines at the beginning, Philistines at the end. Then we go through this extended section in chapter 18, beginning in verse 2, that includes the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, and the Edomites, Edom. We jump over to chapter 19 and we pick up this section on the Ammonites and the Syrians. Some of your Bibles will say Aram or Arameans. It's the same area. So we have Philistines on the outside and then as we work our way in, well, in chapter 18 we have Moabites and so forth, but the focus is on the Ammonites and the Syrians. And then we come to chapter 19, and the whole focus is on the Ammonites and the Syrians. In chapter 18, we're told of the kind of uh, casualties that David and his troops inflicted. The casualty count, the number of chariots, and the number of horsemen. In chapter 19, as you come down to the end, we're told again 
of the casualties that David and his troops inflicted. They're not exactly the same in chapter 18 and 19, but the numbers are so close, and of course the copies that we have have come down through time, and transmission errors take place, which causes scholars to think that what happens in chapter 18, I should put out this hand, what happens in chapter 18 with, uh, with the Ammonites and the Syrians, and then what happens in chapter 19 with the Ammonites and Syrians are the same battle. The, the destruction is so massive, commentators are saying, there couldn't have been two battles. It's the same one. I agree with that. I, th I think that's how we should look at it. Now, we're not going to look at all that this morning. We don't have time. But we read chapter 19 because we're just going to make a little point from chapter 19, and it goes through chapter 20, verse 3. And uh, then I'm going to spend the larger portion of our time talking about this in application to the church. And we will have another lesson on this where we will be talking about this in application to the church again. There are several things I want you to note to start with. Number one, if you read through 18 and you just place the nations, you have the Philistines, you have the Moabites, you have the Syrians, and you have the Edomites. These are countries that surround Israel. The Philistines are on the west, the Moabites are on the east, the Syrians are on the north, and the Edomites are on the south. Oh my goodness, four corners. Makes you think of something, doesn't it? Yes, it sends you back to the Garden of Eden, and in the Garden of Eden there are four rivers that flow out. The picture is to the four corners of the earth. Now something else is flowing out. It's the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is conquering as David was promised his enemies. Some of them they conquer and kill. Some of them they conquer, and uh, these nations become servants to his. Well, all of them become servants because not everyone is killed, obviously. Military men are killed. But they all become servants then, and there's these surrounding nations with David right in the center, and what do they do? They bring tribute to him. And the tribute is gold and silver and bronze, and he's conquered chariots and horses, lots of chariots and horses, and the king's not supposed to multiply chariots and horses, so he hamstrings the horses and destroys chariots and only keeps enough for a hundred to obey the law. So in chapter 18, we're looking at this picture from a, uh, well, a Genesis perspective. Of course, we're called to look at it from a Genesis perspective if we're uh, if, if we're looking well into the scriptures, and I have to admit, our translations are not the greatest, so it's difficult to see things. But in chapter 17, we've already talked about this, David, after receiving such a covenant, 
went into the tent. Remember, the tent is in Zion, and the ark is in the tent. And he goes and he sits before the Lord. He's sitting before the ark of the covenant. Before the Lord, he's sitting. And he says, who am I? Or what's my house? That you've brought me this far. And this is just a small thing. Because you've spoken about my house for a great while to come. That's an understatement. For a great while to come. He's spoken about David's house forever. Remember the Davidic promise? Your seed will be a forever seed. Your throne will be a forever throne. Your kingdom will be a forever king. And she's saying, who am I that you should do say this? Where is it that I come off getting such great honor? You've regarded me as a man of high degree. The word man, it's in chapter 17, verses 16 and following, is the word Adam. And the word high degree is the word ascension. Well, of course, that's part of the Davidic covenant. Because the last seed of David is Christ. And Christ is the second Adam. And the second Adam has. Where do I come off being the house for which, from which this blessing flows So, he speaks about Adam, and when you think of chapter 17, God says, I've been with you everywhere you went, God with us. Then in chapter 17 also, he takes us back to Israel's redemption. There's no God like you, David says. No one's heard of a God like you who took a nation for himself for his own people and redeemed them and brought them out from Egypt. Ah, so that's what David is doing. Because Saul was a royal mess up. And he was defeated and the country's in disarray. And now here comes a new Moses and he's bringing the people out. And he's an Adam reaching to the four corners of the earth. And all of this is done because God is with him. All that stuff that's picked up in the New Testament. That's the picture. That's what's happening here. So, chapter 18 tells us all of this. And then it tells us all this booty he's gotten. Gold and silver and bronze, he has dedicated every last bit of it to Yahweh. And the word dedicated is the word kadosh. And the word kadosh means sanctified. In other words, this whole stuff he's gotten from all these nations around him, and they're still bringing in tribute, which he is giving to Yahweh. He takes all of this, and he sets it over here, and all this gold and silver and bronze, it's all now God's stuff, so it's Kadesh. It's holy. Oh, what's it for? Well, it's for building the temple. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, Chronicles, 
chapter 18. And uh, just look down at uh, verse 14. So David reigned over all Israel. This is the territory mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And he administered justice and righteousness for his people. So here's all these nations around him. They're all subdued. The word subdued at the beginning of chapter 18 and in chapter 20, verse 4, is the word humbled. They're all humbled. In other words, they all bow down to David now. So this justice and righteousness is not just in Israel proper. It goes out into all these surrounding nations. That's what kings do. That's what kings are supposed to do. To reign with justice, which is the word mishpat. It means judgment. In other words, everything is held to a standard. That would be the standard of the book of Deuteronomy. And with righteousness. That is, everything is done right. And so in chapter 18, verses 14 through 17, you get a list of seven men. Well, seven men but the last group, their names are not given. It's the sons of David. So there are seven people, and they administer this whole land. They're ministers over the army, Joab. They're ministers over judgment, the judicial branch of the government. And they're priests over the tabernacle. All of that is done. And so David is lauded here as a righteous, righteous man, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Then you come to chapter 19, and chapter 19 is this story that, again, gives nice little clues about how you should think about it. So in chapter 1, Naash dies. He's the king of Ammon. Hanan, his son, takes power. Naish, well, he was kind to David, so David's going to be kind to his son and go console him. The word, the name Naish, is the word for, what do you think? Serpent. Serpent. And his son's name, Hanan, the way you say it in Hebrew, you know this, Hanan. It is the word grace. The serpent has a son named grace. It, it's mixed up. The serpent is kind to David. The son's not kind. But that's not the point. The names are listed for us so that we know it's the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that's what happens. David sends down his delegation, and they're going to, uh, they're going to uh, console Hanan. But his, uh, his young guys who are coming to power with him, they say, well, no, 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 you know David's not doing that. He's come down here. To, he's going to look things over. He wants to take you over. So what do they do? They show that they're a nation that can handle themselves. And the way you do that is you shame other people. You show, I'm better than you. We've seen that in governmental settings, haven't we? If you can't win the argument nicely, do it by scorn. Do it by shame. 
So what do they do? They take these men, and in 2 Samuel it says they shaved half their beard off. In Chronicles it says they were shaved. That is, they shaved every hair of their body off. And then they cut their garments up to their hips. So hips downward are naked. And the men were humiliated. And what they're doing is they're using biblical, or I should say, symbolism is taking place here. You shave a man's hair off, and now he's a woman. You show him naked from the waist down, and you've picked up biblical imagery of putting the skirts over someone's head like Israel when she's a prostitute. Her skirts are thrown over her head. It's humiliation. They've humiliated these men, which is a statement to David. You are nothing. You're just a woman. What's David do? David does nothing. And these men go to Jericho. They wait for their hair to grow back, and obviously they get new clothes, and they come home. And then Ammon realizes, Ooh, we've become odious today. We got, we're a stink to David. And so they're worried that they're going to be attacked, so they go hire Syrians to come and help them out. With all these talents of gold, they hire them. And then the battle comes. And the battle is split in two parts, Joab and David. And what we're talking about is the hired men now, the people from Syria, from that part of the world. And Joab defeats, and, and David defeats them. And then the rest of the men from Syria say, mm. We're not going to defend the Ammonites anymore. We're going to go over to David's side. So they won't defend the Ammonites anymore. And then in chapter 20, Rabbah, a city of Ammon, is destroyed. And the king there, Hanan, had this crown of a talent of gold with a precious stone in it. And now it becomes David. David's crown, and so all these nations surrounding David, and here's David right in the center with a talent of gold on his head and a precious stone, and he's got himself a name like the names of the gray ones. Now, that, that's the story. So over here in chapter 17 comes the Davidic covenant. I'm going to plant Israel. And I'm going to subdue all your enemies. Right here in the middle, Israel's planted and all the enemies around them, they're subdued. And then we're going to come to chapter 21 and all of a sudden, there's trouble. There's trouble. David numbers the troops. Satan stirred him up. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says, God was angry with Israel, and Satan stirred them up. Well, we all know what that means, because we, we, we've been reading Job this past week, some of us anyway, and lo and behold, here comes Satan into uh, heaven, and, Satan's, and God says, look at my servant Job. He's 
upright, and he runs away from evil, and Satan says, oh, well, you've put it. You, you, look at the kind of life you give him. He's rich, he's got family. You take away all that, and he will curse you. And so God gives him permission. Okay, go do what you want, but spare his life. In chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, that's what happens. God gives permission. And the reason God gives permission is because he is angry with his people. So we have Davidic covenant, we have all the enemies subdued, and then we have trouble in Israel. We want to know, why did it happen that way? Well, I'm not going to give you the answer today, but that's, that's the pattern. What we have in chapters 18, 19, and 20 then is God's faithfulness to his promise to David. So in chapter 18, verse 6, God helped David wherever he went. In chapter 18, verse 13, God helped David wherever he went. All of this is being done because God is helping David. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. Now, I want to move beyond that a little bit. Because I've already mentioned, look, this goes back to the garden, so we have Adam, and over here we have a second Adam. David is a kind of second Adam, but not the ultimate, but Jesus is the second Adam. Over here we have the statement, hey David, wherever you've gone, I've been with you everywhere. We have God with us over here. Then we have a picture of Moses, because God has delivered Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them to the promised land. All these pictures are swirling around in these chapters. Now, we come to the end of the book of Matthew, and at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus comes up to his disciples, and he says, All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Go and make, your translation probably says, make disciples of all men, of all nations. It says, I, I, I kid you not, this is what it says. Make the nations disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age taking us all the way back to Matthew chapter 1. Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with, I'm with you. So, we're like David. David's a second Adam. David's a Moses, and God is with him. And look what God did. David didn't have chariots to fight against 32,000 chariots. How did that happen that he won? Because God promised. And now we come to you and me and our time. And God says, Jesus says, I have all power. All power in heaven and on earth. Biden does not have that kind of power. Trump didn't have that kind of power. Nobody has that power. But the second Adam ascended. He has that power. All power in heaven and on earth. Now, 
The question is, why does he say to his disciples, I have all power? He says it because we are part of Christ. If Christ has that power, we have that power. Now, that doesn't mean you can snap your finger and you get a Lexus in your driveway. No. Because Jesus is God. But he's inviting his apostles and inviting us to tap into that power. How do you tap in? Well, there are a few things that need to be said there. First of all, you have to be in Christ, and then you're part. But you can't just tell God whatever you want, and that's what's going to happen. No. But Jesus says, go make the nation's disciples. Now you think about this. This is the verse that we use for worldwide evangelism, rightly so. But we have not looked at it correctly. It is worldwide evangelism. And of course, worldwide evangelism means going to people. You have to talk to people. That's, that's all true. But that's not the way this verse is stated, these verses. The way these verses are stated is make the United States a disciple. Make England a disciple. Make Chile a disciple. Now, this, of course, is language that comes right out of the Old Testament. This is our problem. We think New Testament. Somebody becomes a Christian, and they say, what should I read? And we say, read Romans. Read John. When's the last time you got yourself a letter, say, five pages long, and you started reading in page three and a half? No, the Bible goes this way, and we should say to new believers, yeah, read Genesis. Read Exodus. You see, because this picture comes out of Exodus. God made himself a nation. That's what, it, that's what David says to him. Who, who, look, there's no God like you that took a people and made a nation for himself. No God's done that. But you did it, redeeming us out of Egypt. And they came out of Egypt... And what they do? Well, Paul tells us they were baptized in the sea and in the cloud. They walked through the Red Sea. We don't have to, un we don't have to wonder, what does that mean? Paul tells us what it means. They were baptized. That is, they're over here in Egypt and they've crossed the land and now they've crossed the sea and they are a new people. God's people, Israel. That's what we're supposed to do. Then they went and spent all time in the wilderness, and then what'd they do? They crossed another river, the Jordan, into the promised land. Between the Red Sea and the Jordan, there are 40 years, but they were made God's people. And in the wilderness, they got God's word. They got God's tabernacle, which is a place to meet with God. And in the wilderness, 
They were given the law. They were given the sacrificial system. They were given everything. They had to get all of that before going into the promised land. That's what we're supposed to do. Make nations disciples. Now, the United States used to be more of a disciple than it is now. We were more of a disciple. Now we're not a disciple. Now, how's that going to be accomplished? How is it going to happen that we could make the United States a disciple? Well, it's not going to come from political involvement, as good as that may be. No, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen through Jesus Christ, who says, I have all power in heaven and on earth. Go make the nation's disciples. Okay, so here's Jesus up in heaven, and we have all that power because we're associated with him. Jesus is up in heaven sitting on the throne of the right hand of the Father. Jesus is sitting there as a human being. I'm not trying to deny that he's God. Don't hear me say that. He's sitting there as a human being, and he's looking into the Father's face. And here you are, one of his, so you get to go in, and in him you're looking right into the Father's face. Something David couldn't do. He was restricted. We get to go right into Jesus, who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Okay, so... Why is the United States going backwards then? Well, we don't have time for a full explanation, but let me say, which I've been saying to you all along, the reason the United States is going backwards is not now because of any president. That doesn't mean presidents don't help us go backwards, but it's not because of them. It's not like Trump pushed us forward in righteousness and Biden's not going to push us forward in righteousness. Biden is definitely going to be pushing us away from righteousness. We know that. But he's not the problem. We are the problem. We are the problem. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at rest with him. That would indicate that the church in the United States, our ways are not pleasing the Lord. Now, it's easy for any one individual to say, well, you know, what am I doing wrong? But we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about the church. And uh, lest we think, well, you know, McKinney Bible Church is pretty good. Remember, we're just a small segment. The church is the church. So God might listen to us. Nay, God would listen to us if our ways pleased the Lord.
they don't. Now, it's easy for us to look around and see what's happening to the church. So we, in broad strokes, we can say problems that exist. But what would cause the church to be pleasing to the Lord? What things would cause the church to be pleasing to the Lord? So I'm going to give you a list. They're not five that I came up with. There are, I agree with them all. There may be more, but there are five I'm going to give you as we close. Number one, the Bible. We need to master the Bible and be mastered by the Bible, God's Word. So, we live in a time where you trust Christ and you know you're going to heaven. And you read Romans and you read John. What you say of a Leviticus? I'm not, I'm not interested in stuff. I can't make any sense of that. But God says, wait, that's my word. That's my word. If my church isn't interested in my word, why should Joseph Biden be interested in my word? I think I'll keep Joseph Biden from being interested in my word till my church gets interested in my word. That means, you know, you've got to think your way through the Bible. You've got to be able to. Well, you know, we're, 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 we're far off from it, but we can get started. I got the message. <laughs> so, I should be able to say Zephaniah, and the church should be able to tell me what it is and how, how it looks. Or Nahum. Any one of those, most of us can't tell, can we? No. But we got time for all kinds of other things. And God says, he's not saying we shouldn't do other things. He's saying, hey, I wrote it for you. You better master it. Number two. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about McKinney Bible Church, so don't hear me saying that. Some of these things we do, we don't do necessarily as well as we could, but we do. The church needs to be holy. So the church has to practice church discipline. You see? It's commanded in Scripture. It was part of Israel's history. But as we've experienced over my tenure here, when church discipline happens, people leave the church. And what do they do? They go to other churches that let them in. Does that please the Lord? No. Why should, why should he listen to us? And so, you know, you think about church discipline. We, we read it at the top of the hour. Things like adultery, drunkenness, and reviling, and immorality. If we just put it in uh, judicial terminology, we call them crimes. 
God said, if you're not interested in crime in the church, why should your government be interested in crime? I think I'll just let them not be interested in crime until you wake up and you're interested in the crimes, the sins inside the church. The table of the Lord. Every week, the Lord invites us to the table, and most of the church in America does not come to the table. Does that make the Lord happy? The idea is, you know, preaching a sermon and all the education we give, all of that's more important than eating at the table of the Lord. But table, the table's for people that are hungry. And Jesus comes and feeds us himself. And so this church, which has the table of the Lord every week, everyone here ought to think, you know, I've had an invitation to Jesus to come. There shouldn't be anything much more important than coming to, when you snub the Lord when he gives you an invite, what do you expect him to think? Oh, that person's all dedicated to me. I think not. Of course, there are reasons for missing. People get sick and so forth. There are circumstances. But we should be coming to the table of the Lord. Time's running out, so I'm not going to develop that one anymore. I've got two more, if I can remember them both. The next one is tithing. We don't use that word around here too much. We use the word giving. And most of the passages that we base our principles of giving on don't have anything to do with tithing. They have to do with, with extra giving for poor people. But tithing started with Abraham and Melchizedek. And first, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us Jesus is our Melchizedek. If Melchizedek got 10%, Jesus over here should get what? 10%. If you don't give, you rob God. You're in debt. Jesus says, well, you know what? If you don't care about debt, why should I want your leaders to care about debt? And they certainly don't, do they? It's just piling up like crazy. A guy like me who's 66 and, you know, on the cusp of death, I can think, well, it won't be so bad in my day. Kind of like Hezekiah thought. But, you know, there are my grandchildren. Who's going to pay that debt? I cannot remember the fifth one. Aren't you lucky? But you see, you see all of this. It's easy to say, yes, I believe Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. Now, God was angry with Israel. So Satan incited David to number the troops. 
May I just paraphrase it this way? God was angry with the church. So Joseph Biden became president. Let's stand. Father, help us to be a people who humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and uh, look to you and live out what we say. I love Jesus. And Jesus tells us, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so, Father, we do want to, I don't know exactly how one should say it, tap into that power. But why would you listen to us when we're like a child who will not obey his parents? Help us to to see ourselves as part of the church, not, not just our life individually, but the church in America. And so help us to give ourselves to prayer for the church in America so that we would indeed stand for truth. So we pray that you would, amidst what you're doing, bring revival to us. Help us to see and repent. We didn't see it under Trump. We didn't see it under Obama. We didn't see it under Bush. But now we have Biden. And it appears for we believers, things are going to get worse. But of course, that's your doing. Because we're not doing. So work in us, we pray, in Christ's name.